Well, all right. Yes, too much stuff. Man, that was great. You know, when Brian first started singing, I was thinking to myself, he was saying too much stuffed, which was exactly what I was thinking because I had two Thanksgiving dinners this year. Still kind of feeling the effects of that one, you know. That's a catchy tune, though, you know. Maybe want to break out a little mashed potato right there. So, <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> All right, so today we're continuing our series, Outrageous Stuff That Jesus Said. And uh, haven't you noticed that it seems like just about everything that Jesus said was radical? You know, for a lot of us, you know, our sweet little Mr. Rogers Jesus has lost his cardigan sweater and penny loafers. I mean, they're gone. And we've got this radical guy that just sort of flings this truth, this straight-talking, you know, revolutionary, that he'll say just about anything to wake us out of our spiritual sleepwalk. You know, but I, I think, if you really think about it, doesn't it really make sense that if God really loves us so much, wouldn't he do just about anything to help us not deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not and that maybe he's different than we think he is and that he'd want us to know the true way to really get to know him? So today we're going to talk a look at at uh, this encounter with a guy that Jesus has that we know commonly as the rich young ruler. Now, here's a guy who was living the Jerusalem dream. I mean, he had finances, he had wealth, he had prestige, he had power, everything, what a lot of people long for. In fact, um, there was a young guy many years ago that went up to this rich older gentleman and they asked him, how did you get all your money? And the dapper old feller smoothed out his shirt and said, well, son... Way back in 1932, in the depths of the Great Depression, I was down to my last penny. And I took that penny down to the market and I bought myself an apple. Took that apple home and I shined it up day and night till it gleamed like the sun. And I took it back to the market and I sold it for two cents. I took those two cents down to the market and I bought two apples. Took them home, shined them day and night till they were just perfect. Took them back and made four cents. I did this for a whole month until I'd amassed quite a fortune, a whole eight dollars. Then my mom's dad died and left us two million bucks. <laughs> oh my goodness. Kind of figures, right? Now I imagine that some of you have already sort of figured out maybe that this is a message about money and you're starting to sweat a little bit. And others of you here are saying, well, I don't have any money, so I'm off the hook. I'm going to take a little nap. You know, wherever you are, you'll find that this message actually is about money, but has nothing to do with money. And then instead, it's a lot, has to do a lot with self-discovery. And something that Jesus helped this young man discover about himself that he didn't know. So why don't you take your message notes out they are in your program there and take a look and fill this out. This is what Jesus taught the young man that we give first place to what we value most. We give first place to what we value most. See, whatever we value most has the most influence in our life. It takes priority. It gets the best of our time and our resources and our energy. And our life is ultimately led by what we value most. Now, if this is true, and I would propose that it is, then we really need to figure out what it is that we value because that's what's going to drive our life. It's going to take us somewhere. 
You know, have you ever taken your dog for a walk, and at the end of that walk, you realize that your dog walked you? <laughs> our values are kind of like that, you know, where sometimes we get ourselves in a situation, our values take us a place that we didn't really know. These hidden values that all of a sudden we get in a spot, we say, how did that happen? Because we made decisions and choices based on what we value. Our life is led by what we value most. So let's dig in and see what we can learn from Jesus today. If you have a Bible, open it up and take a look at Mark chapter 10. Just a reminder, when you come in, we've got Bibles out here in the lobby if you ever want to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible today, no sweat, don't worry. Verses will be up here on the screen and they'll help. So Mark 10, 17 says this. As Jesus was starting on, on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right here from the start, there's some very interesting and amazing things that are going on right from the beginning. So let's take a look at the historical context. See, first of all, we know that this account, historical account, is recorded in three of the four Gospels. And from that, when we put these two together, we discover some very important things about this man. First, he was young. Second, he was rich. And third, he was a ruler, probably a, a, a lay leader of a local synagogue. Now, if you think about it, this is very impressive for a young guy to have such status and importance and prominence and wealth at such a young age. During this time in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, it was they, what they were teaching the people is that if you were rich, it was an indication that you were righteous and that you were blessed by God. And if you were poor or diseased, it was an indication that you were being cursed by God because of your sin. And so by all accounts of the standards of his day, this guy had it made. I mean, if there was any example of a guy that was being blessed by God because of his righteousness, if there was a guy that had a ticket to heaven, it was this guy right here. And yet in his heart, inside, in his quiet moments alone, there was uncertainty and doubt there. That despite everything that he'd done, that it wasn't enough. And so he sees Jesus from a distance and he runs up to him. And he gets down on his knees to ask him a question. And that's kind of a big deal, actually. See, because a guy of his stature, you know, a nobleman, he wouldn't run anywhere. I mean, you just don't do that. And then to bow down before Jesus is an incredible display of, of humility and submission. And if you think about it, at this time, Jesus was a pretty controversial figure. I mean, the religious leaders who were in this young man's circle had already kind of pointed at Jesus and said, this guy is a heretic, he's dangerous, and we want to kill him. So it's pretty risky what this young man is doing. But something drew him to Jesus. And he goes up to him, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What have I left out? There's this hole, this emptiness. I feel like I don't have a relationship with God. I don't know what to do. And you see, anytime that we try to do to inherit eternal life, we're going to feel a sense of insecurity. Because how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know... What's good enough? See, this is the trap of what's called performance religion. And that's where this man was. Performance religion is the idea that you have to do good things in order to get into heaven. 
It's like this big, gigantic cosmic scale somewhere out in the, in the sky. And, and, and the more good stuff you do, you kind of put it on this, this side of the scale, on the good side. And you just get adding as much as you can to the good things. And then when you die, you know, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you've done it. You've earned your way to heaven. And that's what this man believed. It's what a lot of folks believe. You see, he calls Jesus a good teacher, you know. It's kind of this mentality of, hey, you know, you're good and I'm good and hey, we're all good, right? You know, we hear that a lot. In fact, if you go just about anywhere and you ask somebody if they're a good person, they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know. You ask them if they're going to heaven, they say, well, sure, I'm a good guy, right? But the problem is, this is a convenient but also a very dangerous belief. See, God's standard of goodness is very different than ours. God doesn't measure goodness as being relative. He doesn't grade on a, a curve or a sliding scale. See, from God's perspective, good is an absolute. And so this is what Jesus said to the young man in Mark 10, 18. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is good. The young man was asking about eternal life, and Jesus could have told him, well, just believe in me. But Jesus knew that there was something that was blocking his ability to be able to embrace Jesus. He knew that he had to challenge this young man's sense of goodness, and that there was a belief that he had in his head that kept him from understanding his need for God. So Jesus was essentially saying, you know, what do you mean by good? If you understood what good really means... You understand that only God is good. And by calling me good, you're, you're inferring that I am God. And I imagine there's a pause there. You know, we just kind of got quiet. And for a moment, Jesus wanted that to kind of sink in. What do you believe about me? It is so important for where you are right now. And then Jesus went on to explain to him the standard of what is truly good. And he says this in Mark 10, 19 and 20. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. I'm good. <laughs> now, you know Jesus knew that this young man hadn't uh, obeyed all the commandments. I mean, think about what Jesus taught, about how it's not just our behavior that matters, but the attitude of the heart and the intent of what's going on inside of us that truly matters. Matter of fact, this guy hadn't even obeyed the very first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. Yet despite all of this, despite you know, his, <laughs> his pride, Despite his self-righteousness, Jesus deeply loved this young man. It's important to remember that, that Jesus knew him to the very, very core. And he cared about him. He had compassion for him, and he wanted to help him. Mark 10, 21 says, looking at, this, at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Outrageous. I mean, that's crazy. 
it even seems a little bit harsh and unreasonable, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's just like, really? Get rid of everything? Are you kidding me? But see, what Jesus was trying to do was, was help the man overcome this performance religion and instead replace it with a relationship with himself. Jesus told him to do three things. Go sell everything that you have. Give all the proceeds to the poor. And follow me. Jesus defined that what eternal life was really all about, and it was about him. It was all about him. And in order to embrace Jesus as Lord, this young man had to be able to give up his other God, his possessions. He needed to release it and let it go. And that's when the young man discovered something very important about himself. In that moment, that defining moment, that young man realized that what he really wanted wasn't eternal life on God's terms. But what he wanted was to stay in the seat of control, to keep his possessions, to keep his position, to keep his power. What he really wanted was to do things his own way, be his own God. Mark 10, says, At this, the man's face fell, and he went away very sad, for he had many possessions. When the young man faced the choice of giving it all up for Jesus, he turned away and said, no thanks, and walked on. You see, money and possessions were the same to this young man as the father was to Jesus. It was what defined him. It was his center. It was his security, his identity, his life. And the young man thought that he was the manager of all his stuff, but he really didn't realize that his stuff had mastered him. And Jesus warned us about this. And in Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, And what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? The young man wasn't really rich at all. He was bankrupt. I mean, he traded his eternity for his stuff. There's a great verse in Proverbs. It's Proverbs 23, 44, and 5. It says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich, but be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears. It will sprout wings and fly away like eagles. <laughs> I love that. And what, what comes to mind from that is years ago, I used to work for the YMCA. And uh, I was a director of a, of a YMCA. I ran this program called Indian Guides, which was a father-son program where fathers and sons would go play Indians together. <laughs> um, but they'd go on campouts. And so we were on this campout, and the kids you know, were playing all over, and the dads were chatting. And all of a sudden, the kids found this rabbit. And actually, it was pretty tame. It was out there in the camp area, and, and it's running around and hopping, and the kids are laughing, and they're chasing it, the whole thing. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this hawk swoops down, whoosh, grabs the rabbit, whoosh, flies off under the horizon. I'll never forget the looks on the kids' faces. They're like, oh, whoa. <laughs> and for many of us, you know, we've lost thousands of dollars of equity in our house. We've seen retirement plans empty. We've seen investments disappear. 
mean, can we relate to that? This young man placed all this emphasis on his stuff. And it's long gone. I guarantee you, he didn't take it with him. It's gone. Isn't it amazing if you think about it? I mean, isn't it just astounding how crazy and how quickly we can lose our perspective and how fast our heart can just wander? You know, whether it's money or time or priority or even good things like family and recreation or even ministry, how all these things can begin, this stuff can lead us astray sometimes. There's a real danger that our stuff can cause us to be less devoted to and less dependent upon God. And Jesus wants us to guard our heart against this and keep it close to him. So how do we do that? Well, I want to propose three different ways that I think can help us to move from being tight-fisted with our stuff to be able to have open hands. So here's the first one. One is to embrace the reality that eternal life is not an accomplishment, but it's a relationship. It's not an accomplishment. It's a relationship. I've heard people say, you know, I don't need God. You know, I don't need a crutch in my life. I don't need religion. My life's all good without God. You know, they kind of thumb their nose at God like they don't know, owe him anything, you know. And personally, I think that's kind of a, a dangerous belief. But at least they kind of know where they stand, right? I think it's equally as dangerous when there are those who say that they want God. But what they really want is to use God for their own purposes, They want to kind of switch roles with God and get God to do things for them, get God to make their lives better. They've never stepped off the throne of their life and allowed God to rule. Instead, they want to stand in his place, and their true loyalty isn't really to God. It's to themselves. And so when Jesus encountered this rich young ruler, essentially what he was saying to him is, look, I'm inviting you like I invited Peter and James and John and Matthew to leave everything behind and to come follow me. But this is what I know about you, that there's something between us. And in order for you to connect with me, you need to let go of your other God. Your primary value has defined you. It's led you. It's made you who you are. And I want you to be free from that. So that you can enter into a personal, fulfilling relationship with me. And you can't do that unless you walk away from that other God of yours. God wants our love and our loyalty and our devotion. He wants to have a relationship with us. See, he didn't send Jesus to this earth to give us a bunch of rules and regulations and and accomplishments that we can do in order to get into heaven. Jesus came to be in a relationship with us. Jesus is eternal life. 1 John 5.20 tells us this. We know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only true God, and he is eternal life. You cannot have eternal life without Jesus. You can't achieve goodness on your own. (laughs) It can only be given to you through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, that he was made sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. 
and that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, for your rebellion against God, pushing God out of his rightful place, rejecting him. He died for your sin, and he's willing to give you his righteousness. It's the great exchange, the great exchange. And surrendering everything, surrendering everything to Jesus is the true essence of eternal life. All right, number two. Number two is to identify whatever is competing for lordship of my life and reduce or release it. See, Jesus' call for the man to give away all his stuff and give it to the poor was never meant to hurt him. You know, it was an act to set him free. The man's money had become his God and he had to be dethroned before Jesus could become Lord. Jesus spoke many times about how difficult it is with wealth and how it can can begin to move us in the wrong direction and so as the young man walked off this is what jesus said to his disciples mark 10 25 to 27 says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god the disciples were astounded then who in the world can be saved they asked and jesus looked at them intently and said Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. You ever notice that our our stuff can cause us to do irrational things sometimes? Many times we don't stop and think about it. But our stuff can build up our pride. The more we have, the more confident we are in ourselves. And the less we acknowledge God and the less we depend on Him. We're not just interested in having God provide for us because we're doing a great job just providing for ourselves, right? Our self just starts to begin to inflate. We become more self-gratifying, more self-seeking, a little more pleasure-seeking. And we kind of puff up like the Pillsbury Doughboy, all about ourself. And our soul begins to shrink. And we carry this false sense of power and independence and, and control. And our material wealth starts to blind us to our true spiritual poverty. And Jesus knows that the ultimate test of what we really value is our willingness to give it up and let it go. Jesus' primary call, it's not poverty, (laughs) but it's discipleship. You know, we've all heard, you know, there's different versions of the gospel out there. We've all heard the prosperity gospel, you know, where it's kind of like God wants you to be prosperous and rich and look at me and my new Cadillac and the whole thing and pastors driving down the street in their beautiful, nice suits saying, love Jesus and he's just going to take care of you. But we've also heard the poverty side, the poverty gospel, which says, sell everything you have and come join us in a commune. You know, there's these different extremes, but the, the reality is our bank account does not determine our closeness to God at all. You see, the ultimate question from Jesus is, what are you willing to do or not do to follow me? Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus says, follow me. And the true heart of a follower, the true heart of a follower says, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, 
whatever you want me to give, whenever you want me to. And whatever gets in the room, in the way of that, right there, that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to focus on because good things can become really dangerous things when they compete with our love for our Savior. So whether it's time, family, possessions, education, whatever it is, there's going to become defining moments in our life where God's just going to say, I want you to loosen your grip on this. I want you to let it go. I want you to trust me. I want your heart. And in those moments, we're really going to discover, you know, whose we are and what we really love. I want to um, show you a picture. This picture looks like a bunch of junk. <laughs> but what it is, is it's a diorama that our family has in our hallway. And it represents significant things, reminders of times that God's shown up and it's meant really just to be a reminder of how good God's been to our family. And if you see up in the left, not the top corner, but what right down from that, it's hard to see a little bit, but that's a newspaper clipping. And that represents a time when we had a big water canal right behind our house. And the cement siding to that gave way. And one morning we woke up. Our kids were very little at the time. Brooke was like four years old. And there were helicopters swirling over our house. Sirens blaring, telling us to evacuate quickly because it looked like we were going to completely flood it. And right behind that break, there is our house. And so I'm scrambling all over the house. I'm trying to, got, Terry's getting the kids in the car. I'm f- trying to figure out what, you know, I know I don't have enough flood insurance. I'm going to lose it all. I'm going to lose everything. And I'm in a panic. And I'm thinking, what can I grab? What, what, what is valuable? And I remember a moment where I just stopped and I just wrote a note and I said, God, this is your house. And if you want to take this house, you can take it. And I left the note on the counter and I waited. Fortunately, it didn't break all the way through. And I really think that's a miracle. And that's why that's in that box. There's a list on there that lists all kinds of different cancers that we've had in our family. Medication, medical emergencies, a time when our six-month-old daughter got diagnosed as failure to thrive. And they were testing her for cystic fibrosis. In that moment, I said, God, we wanted this child so bad. But ultimately, she's yours, and I give her back to you. And whatever you want to do, God, I don't know where else to go but I'm yours. A time when we were out of work and people brought Thanksgiving dinner to us and brought Christmas presents to our family. A time of six months and we were supporting missionaries at that time. In South Africa and also in Afghanistan, we had a compassion child. And we had no money coming in. And I really felt like God said, continue to give even when you have nothing coming in. And it just didn't make any sense. It was a time when it was like, God, at least we have more than what these folks have. And so we're just going to trust you. And I'd like to say that, you know, I just handled this, you know, like a man stood there like Moses with his staff and said, Lord, I trust you. 
But these were times of aching and hurting and yelling at God and crying, but ultimately coming down to the point of, God, it's all yours. And that's why these are reminders of that, miracles that God's done. See, it's so important to guard our heart, to not let it stray, because we need to reduce and we need to release things that compete, that try to be master over our life, that compete for our first love. We need to keep our heart fully devoted to God and keep ourselves deeply in love with our Savior. Because you see, when our heart is right, when our heart is right, all of the other things seem to fall into place. Last point is this. We need, I need to view myself as a manager instead of an owner and invest in eternal riches. A manager instead of an owner investing in eternal riches. So let's just be honest here. This all sounds good in theory, right? But when it really comes down to being practical about this, this is hard. This is really hard. I mean, for me, I think for, for you, isn't it true that we can kind of identify with that rich young ruler? Like, you know, there are just hard, natural things we have to deal with in life. There's bills to be paid. You know, a lot of us struggle with giving up what we've worked so hard for. You know, there was this young boy who helped his dad um, paint the fence out in the backyard. And it took quite a while to do this. So his dad gave him a very generous wage for that. So Sunday rolls around, the dad encourages the boy to put a percentage of that in the offering plate at church. So Sunday comes around, and Sunday school teacher starts passing the plate in Sunday school, and she notices the little boy there is grasping onto a $5 bill and having a real hard time putting it in the plate. So this stern teacher says, do you know where little boys go if they don't put their money in the plate? And the boy says, yes, ma'am, they go to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to give up our stuff it takes a whole different perspective to do it and it really helps when we view ourselves in our new relationship with god as having surrendered everything and making him lord of our life see it gives us a whole new perspective with our stuff and instead of us being owners of our stuff, we're managers of God's stuff. And God wants his stuff to be used and invested in eternal things that advance his kingdom and not ours. Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat and destroy them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust can't destroy them. And thieves don't break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, the desires of your heart will be also. This outrageous truth of Jesus tosses cultural norms completely upside down. It's the message of the cross. You see, the cross is about giving up. Giving up power. Pouring out resources and serving. It's not about gaining and attaining. And it's not about what we gather up, but what we give up that truly makes us rich. Verses 28 to, to 30. This is Peter's reaction. Peter began to speak up. He says, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that anyone who's given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and property along with persecution. 
And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus, their identity, their careers, everything. And they're wondering, is it worth it? And Jesus assures them. Essentially, he says to them, look, you think you've left everything, but you have no idea. You see, you've been adopted into God's family. And you have all sorts of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the church. And there'll be houses provided for you and food from your fellow believers. You have me and we have each other together forever. Yes, you've given up a lot, but you've gained so much more. Wait and see. Just trust me. Life here is so short, so temporal. Eternal life has just begun. And can't you imagine? I mean, really, really, when we get to heaven and we get there and we see these early followers of Jesus, you know, who gave up everything. Some of them gave their very lives. Do you think they have any regrets at all? Jim Elliott was a missionary pilot. He gave his life to share Christ with Indians in South America. And he said this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I also like what Pastor Tim Keller, he has this perspective. He said, you know, Jesus was the ultimate rich young ruler, right? I mean, Jesus enjoyed the riches of of heaven, unimaginable wealth and love and power, the intimacy of the Godhead for eternity. Yet he gave all of it up to become a human being, a poor baby born in a manger. He gave his big all for us so that we could give our little all up to him, to follow him. And see, when Jesus becomes our greatest devotion, our deepest desire and love, then we have this incredible freedom to get money, to give money, to take it up and to lay it down and to generously invest in the things that Jesus wants to do in the world. And when we link our heart to Jesus' heart, we'll have compassion and devotion to the poor and the under-resourced. And we'll get more involved in their lives. And it will give us such incredible joy to live such a blessed life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. This is a tough one. I mean, really. But God, help us to have an eternal perspective about it. Lord, I want to also pray for those in the room today that maybe they've recognized that you are God and they've pushed you aside and, and made other things more important, not willing to give up control of their life. Something's clicked in their head today and maybe you've spoken to their heart. Help them realize that they can just surrender everything to you. You say, Lord, I trust you. I give it all. I want you. God, help us all, God, to be generous, to be givers, to be managers, to be willing, God, to let you be everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.